0: Uh, Mike sold, uh, bought his first house for 50, around $50,000. Put a little money into repairs in kitchen and bathroom, and turned it over and sold it a couple months later for somewhere around $80,000. Uh, he was in his 40s, lived in Tampa. Uh, he initially, for a lot of years, was a, a, bo- a repaired boats. Actually, did quite well at that because he he worked for very rich people on their big boats. But uh, it got backbreaking and stuff, so he decided, as someone told him, hey, man, you can go into the flipping houses market. This was in the early 2000s. The market was on fire. He bought a second house, sold it for even a bigger profit, and on and on it went for four or five years. And Mike made a lot of money. What Mike wasn't uh, prepared for, and which a lot of people weren't prepared for, was around 2006, 7, and 8, when the bottom of the market dropped out. And generally it turned out that it was a big Ponzi scheme, uh, and the whole thing came crashing down. If you remember in 2008, the whole housing market went like exploded, and the bubble popped. The thing about uh, Mike, he's typical of, of many, is that he based his entire life on being able to do whatever he wanted to do and to make the amount of money that he desired. And making good money and flipping houses, he was overjoyed. And uh, But when it didn't work anymore, Mike got poor. He fell into anxiety, depression. He became addicted to prescription drugs. He got grossly overweight and saw his life as pointless. At one point, he took a lot of pills and Seemingly tried to kill himself, but ended up in a in a, a mental hospital for a while. But anyway, his whole life was destroyed. When I heard about this story or read about this story, and it was typical of many people at the time, it made me think about the fact that when someone is poor or life is hard, say they're struggling to find work in an environment that has high unemployment um, and drugs are cheap and plentiful and all around, does God not have a plan for that person? Say a person's poor, living in a bad neighborhood, uh, there's high crime. There's a lot of drugs, and there's, and it's hard. It's a struggle to live. You can't find work because unemployment's high. You can't find good work. You can't find rewarding work. Does God not have a plan for that person? Did God not have a plan for Mike? And if God does have a plan, is it limited by economic constraints? I mean, if a person's poor, can God only have a plan that will do so much? If a person lives in a bad neighborhood, can God only do so much? Is his plan in any way limited Or not as wonderful as it is for someone who say, middle class or even richer. But we know the answer to that. And that's what leads us to, uh, or helps us to uh, see John the Baptist here today. John the Baptist is going to accept the will of God for his life. And he's not going to have a long life. He's not going to have a very prosperous life, depending on how you consider what prosperity is. But John is going to have a wonderful life, and that is because he sticks within God's will. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 3, and let's begin with prayer, thanking God for the opportunity to hear and study his word, always be grateful for God's word, always be uh, have a mind that is ready to absorb God's word and learn from it, and that takes humility and reverence. So with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You always provide for us truth. Every line of Your inspired Scripture has incredible divine truth in it that we need to know and learn. You've provided it for us by grace. It is a gift. May we see it always as such, Father, and not see Your Word or learning Your Word as a burden or as a task or a duty, but as something that we love to do. Because it is hearing from you. It is reading letters that you have written by inspiration. And so, Father, as we look to this gospel again, we ask that you enlighten our hearts through the Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today, uh, we're looking at accepting God's will for your life. And what that means is not just a, this doesn't mean that you're like, fine, all right, God, I'll just, whatever, (laughs) with a bad attitude. It's actually loving to live the life that God has given you. And what God has given you is where you're at right now, whatever that is. Now, if there's changes that need to be made, those are going to be changes from sin to righteousness. But there's often much that we cannot change. As I was talking to someone recently about the fact that we want to control our circumstances or even the the details of today, how things go, good luck with that. I mean, you might be able to control a few things, but we, we all find out soon enough that control is an illusion. We can't control the events of our lives. We can't control what others do. We can't control hardly anything. But it's also not just you know, let go and let God, that kind of thing. It's not go with the flow. It's that you have something to do. You have a lot to do. And God's will in your life, in the circumstances you're in, in the position you're in, in the location you're in, I mean literally the geographic location you're in, the tasks that you have to do, right down to the very mundane things like go to the store and get something or go shopping for something, if it's all done with God's will in mind, God will take any life and make it full and abundant, abundantly fruitful. That's what Christ said. In John 15, Christ said, if you obey the commandments, if you obey, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. But it also said, he says in that passage that the Father is going to prune us. And prune means to clip off branches that ain't producing fruit. And what that means is that God is going to do the things that need changing, things that need to go. And um, you know, we have to accept that, which leads us to the next question of why so many people, and seemingly the majority of the population of the earth, find it extremely hard, if in fact impossible, to follow the will of God for their lives. God's a creator of this whole world. God is a creator of every single human being. Yet, for the most part, human beings find it impossible to follow the will of God in their lives. They want what they want. Why Why doesn't God have desires that match our own desires? For the most part, people want what, like I read about that man Mike who grew up in Tampa. He didn't grow up in Tampa, but he lived a majority of his life there. Um, he wanted to flip houses. He loved the idea of buying and uh, buying low, selling high. I mean, who wouldn't? He's making gobs of money. Why wasn't that God's will for his life? Because God wants something more for us than what we want for ourselves. That's very abundantly clear in the Scripture. God wants more for us than we want for ourselves. People, every single person in this world is aiming way too low. And if God were to leave us alone and say, all right, you know, I'll, I'll take my magic wand and bless every venture that you go on. You'll, everything will work to your favor and you'll make all kinds of money and everybody will love you and so on. And God would be giving us something that is sinful, first off, because it's selfish. Selfish. He would be giving us something that is base, meaning of a lowness, when God is high. God says my ways are so much higher than your ways, like the heavens are higher than the earth. And our ways are low. And if God were say, for instance, God were to settle for that, he would be going against his will. Now, there's a conundrum there, right? Is there like something above God that's like his will? And God looks up to that and says, well, i got to do what you tell me to, right? Hey, will, whoever that is. But, you know, God is, God is his will. So this leads us to the next great revelation and something that we need to understand is that God cannot bless anything that is outside of his will. God can only do his will because his will is perfect and righteous. That if he were to bless something that goes against what he wills, he would be not God. And so when we complain to him that, God, why don't you do this the way that I want you to? It'd be like, why would I want to do that? That is against me. And so God teaches us patiently, thank God, that we have to conform Because it's the only way. It made me think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. The time of year for people to watch that. And George Bailey had to learn the hard way that his will was not God's will. Although they kind of include God in that movie, but in the form of a silly angel. But whatever the case. uh, But what's not of real life in that movie is that George Bailey ends up with tons of money at the end which, you know, is, it's not about money, as we'll see today. So look at Matthew 3.1, just a bit quick review before we get to verse 4. Today is about John's clothes and food. And I thought for sure I was going to just skip right over this. I, I prayed about it, and God, in his marvelous way, led me to, he said, no, don't skip it. There's something important here. And I'm glad he showed it to me. Matthew 3.1. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness or really proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is near at the doorstep. For this is the one spoken of or referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight." Isaiah 40, verse 3. We looked at that passage last time. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins or when they confessed their sins. Uh, So... Verse 4 describes what he wears and what he eats. And the other, uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark says the same thing. John doesn't mention it, neither does Luke. But Matthew and Mark indicate his wear, you know, what he wears and what he eats. Uh, this garb, as many have seen, actually uh, is similar to the, the common wear of Elijah, In 2 Kings uh, one of the kings of Judah says, uh, asked somebody who ran into Elijah and asked what he was was like or who he was. And the messenger said he was a hairy man with a leather belt around his loins. And uh, a hairy man, not so much that he's like topless (laughs) and he's full of hair, but that this is a hairy kind of mantle or robe around him. And the king said, it is Elijah, the tishbite. So the king knows from what Elijah was wearing that it was Elijah. So it must mean that Elijah was known for this. There's another passage in Zechariah in Zechariah 13:4 that indicates that a hairy robe was something that the prophets normally wore. And you have to remember that there were hundreds of prophets in Israel. In every generation, there are hundreds of prophets. that We don't even know who they were, but there were a lot of them. And the scripture indicates that. The passage in Zechariah seems to indicate that people were saying they were prophets when they were not, and they were dressing like prophets. So they were wearing the garb. It's like someone today dressing up like a priest. You know, there's a a dress that someone has on, or a robe, and you say, oh, that's a priest. Well, it turns out that for the prophets, there was something similar. And it looks like uh, John is actually dressing like that. All right, put a pin in that. And then there's the locusts. Is John, you know, why is he eating locusts? Well, it turns out that locusts are commonly eaten in that part of the world, and they still are. You can go to... Middle Eastern markets and buy locusts if you wanted to. Uh, there still is, and definitely then, uh, a great many Bedouin people who moved through the desert uh, or around the wilderness, so that they could feed their livestock and such, and they ate what they could. If you're if you're living life on the move, there'll be times probably when you're. You want to always have food on hand in case there isn't a lot of food available, and locusts are plentiful in that area, and so they ate them. People lived off the land. They still do. There's actually recipes out there. For some people, they're a delicacy, but I think there's always some people who think something is a delicacy, it seems to me. John also ate wild honey, which can be found in the clefts of the rocks in the wilderness, Uh, This is fairly plentiful, too, and John, though, was ministering in the Jordan Valley, which even now is a lush place because of all the water. Uh, Back then, it was even more bountiful, so honeybees would have been common. So Matthew and Mark mention his clothes and his diet, but they don't tell us anything else. Same thing in Mark. They just state it. There's no commentary. They don't say why. Why? or why it is even being mentioned. So we guess at it, and I think our guess is correct here, that John is, or really the gospel writers are showing John's humility. John is, and we saw in verse 5 that all of Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district. I mean, there's a huge following here for John. Even the historian Josephus says that there was a large following to John the Baptist. And so he's popular, but John never forgets who he is. And that's the point for today. John is willing to accept whatever God tells him to do. And John was called by the Lord to a certain task. And the voice crying out is a forerunner of the Lord. We saw that in Isaiah 40. And it's also, he's also mentioned in Malachi 3.1. And we want to look at that a little bit because there's a little extra in Malachi 3, 2, and 3 that reveals something to us about John. And one thing, and this is revealed in the Gospels as well, that John isn't the Christ. And we say, well, no, duh, of course he's not. We tell from the Gospels that John is likely the cousin, the first cousin of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. But... It's actually quite significant that John is not Jesus. And in fact, they both have very different lives. And both of which are following the will of the Lord. So we have in Isaiah 40, which Matthew quotes, a voice crying out. And in Malachi 3.1, he's a forerunner. He is, and he says this of himself, I'm the one. I'm the one that has been prophesied. So, John was to not step outside of his task. John was not to have his own plans, no matter how tempted he might have been to do so. And that is a manifestation of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is saying, Well, I'm going to do what the Lord wills me to, and who am I to stand against his will? And in fact, the fear of the Lord is if I do stand against his will or in opposition to his will, then. I will actually uh, reap what I sow in that situation, which will not be very good for me. And I fear that, you know, in a way, in, in that way, I fear my Lord in a good way. So that's a manifestation of the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord comes from knowing who he is and who you are. Who are you and who is he? And what, and indeed, what comparison could there be between you and He? The Lord promises, however, this—the great Lord, the Almighty, who can do all things, as we've seen. He promises that if we remain in His plans for our life, that He will prosper that life. We say, great, He's going to prosper that life. But hold on, do you know what prosper means? And back to our opening example. Mike, whose last name I don't even know, they did mention it in the article I read about him, that he wanted, I want to keep doing what I'm doing in real, successful real estate, basically, and I want to make lots of money. And that, to me, is prosperity. But God said to him, and to everybody, in fact, that that's not my prosperity. What is the Lord's prosperity? And that prosperity is... His desire. Everything that God does prospers. You notice that? There's nothing he does that doesn't prosper. It's only mankind and their rebellion that has caused the problems here on earth. It is in ourselves that we cause all our own problems. When we turn to our own way... We go astray. This is exactly what is said of us, both in the prophets and repeated again in the New Testament, that we go astray and that we uh, create our own issues and our own problems. So the fear of the Lord then for us is to remain, and this is one aspect of it, to remain in the calling, the task, in the role that God wills. And the prosperity of that is his fruit. Now, his fruit, his famous passage for this is in the Gospel of John, John 15, that you will bear much fruit and glorify me. And this means every life. It doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. It doesn't matter if you're in a dilapidated, terrible, crime-ridden, drug-ridden neighborhood or in a nice, calm, beautiful neighborhood with no crime. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who's around you. Because if that mattered, that would mean that the things that surround God's plan can affect God's plan. And they cannot. Nothing can affect what God's going to do. He's very clear about this over and over. He says it in magnificent ways, especially through the prophets. He says it quite poetically. which He says it in ways that are meant to really blow our hair back. And uh, I, I, do long, I do wish that all of us would know those passages and be so moved by them. I think one of the big problems in Christianity is that we're not moved anymore by the very simple things that God says about Himself. We call them simple, but we've just become so used to them that they don't really wow us anymore. That's a problem. Prosperity is guaranteed, but remember that that prosperity is the bearing of fruit that God wills. All right, go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And here we see John. Not by name, of course. Now, Malachi is prophesying after the exile, after they return, actually quite some years after they return, we don't know for sure the exact date of the, this book of Malachi, but it's somewhere uh, around uh, as it closes the Old Testament here in the English Bible. It, in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't close. Uh, Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. But Malachi is uh, one of the 12 um, and the 12 minor prophets. He's the last one that's listed here. So he's, he's somewhere uh, around four, four in change. And the reason why I mention that is because he's, he's likely one of the last prophets to be on the scene in Israel. And then there's this long time of which there is nothing, there's no prophecy, nothing, nothing of God or from heaven comes to Israel until John the Baptist. So Malachi 3.1 one. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And there there it is. That line, that's John. So we're very sure that this is John. And a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, which we say the voice crying out in the wilderness. The same language is used here. Clear the way before me. Make a highway for the Lord. And so this is what the forerunner does. And instead of actually building a literal road... What John the Baptist is doing is preparing the hearts of Israel for the acceptance of their Messiah, which they won't do, but he still does his job. And this is true of Jesus going to call John the greatest of all the prophets. And John, like all the prophets, have this most terrible ministry. And that it is up to them to continue, no matter how much they're rejected, to continue with the message and to keep speaking it and speaking it and speaking it and not becoming discouraged. Because no one's, hardly anyone's going to listen. It's true of all the prophets. And all of us must understand that, again, and it gets back to that define prosperity in terms of how heaven defines it and not how earth does. Because his ways are higher than our ways. We must understand truly what prosperity of the Lord is. And John did, as did the Lord. Now the Lord comes very is next, in the very next sentence. So behold, I'm, John first, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Right? This is the coming of the Lord. It sounds very much of like what John is proclaiming. Verse 2 Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? And the answer to this is nobody. I mean, who can? Who is righteous? Nobody. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller and like fuller's soap, which are both means of purification, and he will purify. And so and in verse 3 follows the same thought. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And the reason why he's specific here to the sons of Levi is, as you notice prior, that the Lord is going to go to his temple. It's the sons of Levi who are ministering in the temple. They are the priests. And he's also asking them for an offering in righteousness and so that is the priests. And we know, of course, in the Gospels that the Lord, when he came to the temple, he had a great conflict with the priests. And the, the, he, these were a huge problem for the Lord. A great temp, a, a testing or uh, opposition to the Lord came from the priesthood. And then in verse 4 then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And in verse 4, this prophecy seems to jump far into the future, which he may mean the millennial reign when offerings will be offered again, and they will be righteous. But also in view here, in my estimation, is the offering of the Lord himself. And the Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is going to be offering himself in Jerusalem. Will that be pleasing to the Lord? It is the one thing that is pleasing to the Lord of all offerings. So the reason why I go through all this, because most of this is not about John, is to show the contrast. The contrast is, I'm sending my messenger in verse 1, he will clear the way before me. Where is John when he does this? In the wilderness, near the Jordan River. And where does the Lord come? In the very next sentence, it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So... The will of the Father is, John, go to the wilderness. Jesus, go to the temple. And your paths are different. Now, John may want to go to the temple. I'm not saying that he did, but what if he's tempted to? Say, you're John the Baptist, and you're out there in the wilderness, and you're proclaiming and proclaiming the gospel. You're proclaiming Isaiah. You're proclaiming the prophets, and the people are coming out. And they're not listening. Well, John has a huge following, and he's baptizing a lot of people, but we know from what happened that Israel did not repent. They were not ready for their Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. So what if you're John, and you're out there, say, for however hour long, say you're out there six months, and your ministry is tanking, and you say to yourself, you know what, I'm tired of being out here. I'm tired of failing out here. I'm going to go into the city. He's not to go into the city. He's to stay in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus is to go to the temple. And, I mean, I know he goes other places, but my point is is that for us, in our age, some are called to the wilderness. And what I mean by that is that you're going to have a ministry that is not really known. It's not seen. It's not heard. And there are others that are called to a ministry that's in the limelight. And they're seen and heard, and maybe people notice what they do. And then there's all in between. What are we called to do? What, are, what you know, Take each Christian life. Are they all the same? Are they carbon copies of each other? Some have plenty. Some have nothing. Some have good marriages. Some have bad marriages. Some have... Uh, really healthy bodies and some people have terribly sick bodies. some have good kids, some have bad kids, some have no kids and some are you know have good rewarding jobs and, and to, honestly as it go back to an earlier point, if you think you have controlled all of this, you're deceived. I mean where you're at now, even who you're married to or not or whatever I mean it's not like you... You, you really, I mean, you make your choices and decisions, but you, you're really limited as to what you can choose. I mean, how many people did you have to choose from who were willing to marry you? Were there like hundreds? <laughs> like knocking down your door? Were you, were you like, um, you know, some rich uh, eastern monarch who, you know, has a harem? Like in the book of Esther, if you know book of Esther, the king kicks his wife out, and then he has a big grand beauty pageant, and he picks the one he wants as his wife, which turned out to be a Jewish girl named Esther, which is the point of the book. <laughs> and it's a, but there, there again is, is something that, you know, in the captivity of Israel, if I go out on a tangent here, this one girl is chosen by the king of Persia. He's the most powerful man on the earth, He's Xerxes. He chose. She's chosen this one girl to be his wife, out of thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of girls. What God chooses for you is what you get. And the problem with us, because of three obstacles, flesh. And I'm particular here. I I could refer in the flesh to lust. These are all problems. But our pride. I want something else. Now, I I am preaching this to me as much as I am to you. I want something else. God says, well, what I've given you is my will. Do you understand that? Do you... (laughs) Do you understand that there is nothing else? And that if you stand against my will, do you really think that you're going to be blessed by me? He can't do it. It's impossible. And that's why the human race suffers so badly. You know, in that article that I I read, really it's a book that I, I read about that guy Mike from Tampa. I read about... Many, many, this, it, there's example after example in that book of people who have lived through the years that you and I have lived through, if you're, if you're old enough, through the 80s and 90s and the 2000s who have, you know, staked their claim and their happiness in the goings-on of, you know, various ways of prosperity that have come to America. If you remember the 80s, you know, with the Reagan era, things boomed here and there was money to be made and then things you know things are on a we're on a roller coaster they always are but you know it's this people are never content the population of people they're not content they always want which makes a certain small portion of the population extremely wealthy it's all that i mean if all of us were content nobody would be getting really rich probably, you know hardly in the way that they do marketing wouldn't matter if we were all content but we're not and even christians are not content and it's sad that's very sad because what they have in christ is above and beyond anything they could have ever imagined but yet when they And when they have heaven in their hands, which every believer does, you have heaven in your hands, and then you look to the earth and you say, well, why can't I have more of the earth? And God shakes his head at us us and says, I have given you the heavens. Don't desire the things upon the earth. Your life is hid with Christ in heavenly places. That's Colossians 1, 3 through 4. Back up. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And there's the world. The world is full of fear. I have to be successful. I have to make a certain amount of money. I have to have a certain job. I have to have a certain success. I have to win. That's the way of the world. And God says, you have to do what I want for you. And what I want for you may be to lose. Are you ready for that? What I want for you may be to, may be Loss. Do you want that? And God has given us a free will by which we have to choose one or the other. And then comes the devil. The devil is the tempter. And uh, we see right after the Lord Jesus is baptized by John, his ministry begins. And what's the first thing that happens to him is his temptation in the wilderness. He's tempted. And you and I will be tempted. Now go to Hebrews 12. So John's not to go to the John's not made for the temple as we saw. John is made for the wilderness. The Lord Jesus has his own plan from the Father. Remember, he's not making it himself. He is the son of God, he is the eternal God, but he does not make his own plan. The Father makes his plan and he follows it. He says this clearly, that I do only what the Father wants me to do. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross in Philippians 2. If we do not accept the role that God has given us, and by the way, when we see here coming up, you know, maybe started a little bit tomorrow, uh, tomorrow or Sunday, probably Sunday, that uh, we're baptized into the body of Christ. So John says... I baptize you with water, one's coming after me, who's greater than me, who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we find out later on in the New Testament, that the baptism of the Spirit enters us into the body of Christ. And we find in that, especially in 1 Corinthians 12, that in that body, each of us are made members. And Paul points out, that some of us are eyes and some of us are feet and some of us are hands and so on. We have different parts. We have different positions. We have different things to do, different ministries. And so we have a role. And the role of the eye is not the same as the hand. And that's the point that Paul makes. The eye can't say to the hand or the foot, I have no need of you. We all need one another because the body of Christ is to function as a unit, as a unified whole. And I pray that that is always the case in the body of Christ throughout anywhere and in any local assembly. And in that place, the different, one, different members have different roles. They have different spiritual gifts, different ministries, different effects. And that is all by the will of God, the Holy Spirit. So when we are baptized into the body of Christ, we're baptized into a plan or a will that God has for you in that particular part of the body. You must understand that, that at the moment of salvation, you were given a role and a task and work to do in your place. You weren't given my work or someone else's work. You were given your own. And you have to discover what this work is. And God has made it very easy to discover that work. It also it takes time, but he hasn't made it hard. As you'll see, I've got a point coming up. I'll show you that. If you do His will, you will find out His will. And that sound just like God? If you do His will, you will find out what His will is. So you follow the commands as best that you can in all the situations you're in. You don't say, well, I know what you want me to be as a husband or a wife, but I don't want to be married. And God says... <laughs> That's not an option. You have one option to be the one that I've made you to be. And if you don't, you are standing against my will and that's not going to work well for you. But can I have option B? He says, no, it is not an option. And if you change it, that option against my will, then you suffer the consequences of that. Because then again, you're standing against my will. And all of us have to learn this. And that's the pride component. That's the flesh. I want what I want. I want everything gathered to me. And God says no. So look at Hebrews twelve, twenty-eight. I love. God describes Himself here as a consuming fire. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's the kingdom that you and I have. That's the New Jerusalem. That's what John came to proclaim, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You and I are members of it. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And sadly for some expositors and interpreters, every time, even You know, students of the Bible, every time they see the word fire, they think of judgment. Which, that's true. I mean, very often it is. But we're not, if you notice the context of this, this is gratitude, not fear. The consuming fire that is our God here is his love for you. And the fact that he has gone through so much and sacrificed so much to give you and me a kingdom. A kingdom that can't be shaken. You don't own that here on earth. You only own that in heaven. And you do own it. And that so therefore we should show gratitude because God has consumed us with his love and his blessings. And so what should we do? Reverence and awe. So we have three things here. Thankfulness, reverence, and awe. And awe and reverence are like fear of the Lord. They're often, that is often the definition of fear. So, the question for us is, have you found his will in every aspect of your life? Do you know exactly what it is that you're supposed to do? Does something in your thinking need to change? And if it does, are you pursuing it? And it's, oftentimes, and I do the same thing, but oftentimes we, we know something's wrong because we're miserable. Because we can't handle stuff. And therefore God is. What is God showing us in our pain? We saw this back when we studied. We had a class on the wilderness. What is in the wilderness? There's want. And in the wilderness there's pain. And God is training us to a. Not so much discipline. Although that may be involved. But the end goal is not the discipline. As if God is a masochist or sadist. I can't remember which one it is. But. That God just wants to hurt us. But God wants us on a new beginning. God wants us to change. Hence, the wilderness becomes a repentance. Wilderness is, there's a pain here. God wants it to change. Well, have you sought that change? And have you done the things that make for that change? And that means study. And it means prayer I highly recommend, I, I don't say recommend, it should be that you're going to God in prayer with that need for change and asking Him to show you how to change, to do the things that are necessary to God to reveal it to you, to provide for you, to give you the power to, and so on. And by, remember He said, keep asking, seeking, knocking. If you ask, especially that kind of prayer where I need change, and in that kind of prayer, don't, if you're saying to God, I need change, just not now. You know what I mean? Can you change me, God, but wait till tomorrow? That means you don't want to change. And you should talk to him about that. But to know that when you ask God to lead you in how to change, that you uh, open up your heart to him to the reality of that he needs to do something. And that you're not alone in it. It's not God folding his arms, tapping his foot, waiting for you to change. But he cannot do things. If you stand against his will, how is he to bless that? He, the, the, what needs to change in us is our attitudes, And our attitude towards something that we are not doing well in. Does some aspect of your life need to change? Now, I speak of real things like someone's in a bad relationship and you need to get out of it. You have an addiction and you need to overcome it. The company you keep. As Proverbs says, evil company corrupts good morals. Needs to change. Church attendance. If you're a believer who says, I I don't need to be with God's people. That's a violation of a principle of doctrine. Time in Bible study. There's a lot of believers who completely neglect the Bible. And they hurt for it. They hurt. Because their perspective, the eye of their heart, is not focused on the Lord. It's focused on every other thing. And then they get back to the Word of God every once in a while, and they become refocused. And they say, you know what, I feel better. Of course you do, because your eyes are looking at the Lord. Does that need to change? Are you longing for change when God wants you not to change? I say, well, come on, why can't God? He is clear. It's not confusing, really, at all. There are some things that God will not change. Are you longing for change when God wants you not to change it, but to endure and to in it discover his will? That's endurance. And that is definitely a trial. That's another wilderness situation. What is his will in your current situation in marriage? I said, well, I'm just going to get a divorce. If it's not God's will, there's only one out for divorce. I mean, unless the person actually leaves you. That's in the New Testament. There's nothing you can do about that if they leave. But you can divorce for infidelity or adultery. Other than that, according to the Lord, there is no reason. But there's no contest divorce in our world, and you can just exchange husband and wives like you do shirts in our world. So you say, well, I'm going to get out when God doesn't want you to. You have your family, your marriage, your children, your work, the neighborhood you live in. The amount of money you have, which you cannot change. And then God wants you to endure, discover his will in it. How do you use the money you have to his will? How do you treat your neighbors and your children and your family according to his will? I want to change my children. Well, first, you have to treat them in the manner that God wills you to as a parent. To instruct them, to provide for them, to not exasperate them. And then maybe they'll start to change. Maybe they won't. God doesn't guarantee results. But God does guarantee fruit. Those kinds of results. The results that we're looking for, that we're going to continue to get richer, if we are, or our kids are going to really turn out great. They may not. There's divine fruit in it all. The beauty about divine fruit, well, I say beauty, It is beautiful once you discover it, but you never know what it's going to be. What are the results of this going to be? I don't know, but I do his will. Did did John know that he was going to be beheaded? Likely not, but he was by Herod. Herod Antipas, who was the the son of Herod the Great, was um, threatened. John didn't threaten him. John did point out a sin of his, and it made Herod very mad that he married his uh, brother's wife. But, um, you know, he was threatened by the ministry. He felt threatened because just like his father, Herod Antipas, was a paranoid, self-centered, lustful, evil man. And so he had John beheaded. Um, You know, whatever situation I'm in, If you do God's will, God promises that divine fruit is going to be manufactured. And you have no idea what that fruit is going to look like oftentimes. But God says it will amaze you. And it will fulfill you. It will give you purpose and contentment and joy. And if I can again go back to my whoever this Mike is, that if he he was in the pursuit of whatever he was doing and then the whole thing fell apart and he became poor, as a believer who knows and loves the Lord, the response would have been, I've seen people do this. Lord, you give, you take away, blessed be your name. I'm not going to fall apart. This is God's will. What's next? You know, What's the next door? What are you doing here? But I know it's going to be great because all things work together for good to those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight. So, it makes for a wonderful life, truly. Because God's fruit is born in all situations, by all kinds of people. But the key is that they have to humble themselves. That's so what the title of this message was The Success of Humility. They have to humble themselves before the mighty hand of God. Huh. I think that's in the book of Hebrews. In fact, I know it is. Go to Hebrews 10. John remains in his role. Hebrews 10.35. The Lord remains in his role. There are two different roles. And so, of course, I'm going to ask you, are you going to remain in yours? What is your role? Do you know what your role is? To do God's will in all things is to find the role that God has willed for you. It's the only way you're going to find it is if you actually, in humility, say, you know what, you are my father, you are my Lord, and I'm going to keep your commands. I'm going to do what you will me to do. there's no fancy theological way to put that. It is the main problem with Christians who suffer and who are miserable and who uh, do not have contentment in their lives, don't have power, don't have momentum. It is the same exact reason every time. They don't do His will. There's nothing else to it. Obey And God will work through you. Philippians two twelve and thirteen. Hebrews ten thirty five. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then quote for yet in a little, very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. I'm sorry, preserving of the soul. And the preserving of the soul here would speak of deliverance, deliverance from, now this doesn't mean things are not going to go wrong or that you're not going to suffer, but preserving means life it's a life that is lived with vigor and with wisdom and and then it doesn't matter what the circumstances are hence it is preserved what is the, and so the the quote from the Old Testament here has a if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him and shrink back from what well it wouldn't be from God although there is a fear of God is is here but in the context is that you have done the will of God. Shrinking back means that the your enemies here, which are these guys, have caused you to, to go another way. you paid attention to your pride more than you have to your Lord. That you feared the world more than you have feared your Lord. That you were tempted by the devil and you gave in rather than fearing your Lord. And... As a result, we shrink, shrink away in fear from the obstacle. All right, so the context here is no matter what, circumstances, people, it doesn't matter. I must do his will. That's what John does in the wilderness with his camel hair coat and his belt and his terrible diet. (laughs) I'm sure he was good and healthy. I mean it. You've got basically protein and pure good sugar from God. That's God sugar, not the processed stuff that's killing the world and giving them all type 2 diabetes. But this is the good stuff. And so John was probably extremely healthy. But regardless, the thing that makes John who he is is doing the Lord's will. It's the same thing with our Lord. Although he is what he is because he's God, right? John's not that. But the Lord is—we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, in, in great anguish in his soul, saying, "Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me." But not my will, yours. And so, um, look at Hebrews 13. I'll close here. I don't have—I have more passages. I don't have time for them. And since we're in Hebrews, Hebrews 13:20. Now the God of peace, who brought you up from the dead, sorry, not you, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this is the closing of the book of Hebrews. His prayer for those who he's writing to, which is God's prayer. Well, God doesn't pray. he does pray to himself. Uh, <clears throat> the God of peace. It's important that that title is here at the front of this prayer. That the God of peace is to instill peace in our own hearts. And it doesn't matter uh, what... So in the book of Hebrews, the, the, the people that the writer is writing to, are writing to, Uh, are being persecuted by their families. Uh, They're Jews who are become Christians, and they're being persecuted by other Jews. And they're having a horrible, hard time in life. And just living every day, they're being ridiculed and persecuted. Their families won't talk to them. People won't do business with them. So they're losing money. They're poor. They're outcasts. And there's a real easy solution here for them that they see, and that's to go back to be in Jews. In other words, practicing Jews. They go back to the temple and awful sacrifices again and then their family will accept them. And but that's not the will of God. In this case, to do the will of God for them is to suffer the ridicule and ostrazi ostracization. What is that? I know ostracized. I don't know. To be ostracized um, Now, to follow God's will means that in this case. And what does he say here? That he will equip you for every good thing to do his will. You will find the power. You will find the ability. You will find the wisdom to do his will if you choose it. So, in our next part here, and I'd say we, we might actually... Continue this tomorrow a bit, but Jesus is going to start doing. That. No, of course Jesus has always done his will, God's will, right? He's perfect. But when it when he comes to be baptized by John, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to begin his ministry, and the first thing that he faces when he begins his ministry is temptation by the devil. And we're all going to be tempted by the devil to do something else, and it's not oh, I mean, oftentimes it's like the, the big drug and alcohol thing, you know, like go off the deep end into some kind of immorality, sexu- immoral sexuality or drugs or alcohol or something like that. But it can also be things that the whole world considers good and that no one considers bad. And Satan doesn't care. He's an equal opportunity tempter. He will tempt you in whatever, what he wants is to kill you. Truly, he wants, to, he wants to make you miserable. He hates you. He hates the whole human race. And he wants to get your eyes, your ways, your will away from God. If that means that he's going to tempt you to be a family man or a workaholic or whatever, you're going to save the world through green energy or something, or you're going to go into politics and you're going to, but you're going to throw your heart and soul into something. It could be something like your kids. And you're going to neglect the Lord. That thing becomes an addiction or an idol just as much as anything else. And we're all going to be tempted. So we have to be alert, as the Scripture says. So then. come okay, on! Oh, I didn't even make it. I thought I did. Weird. Oh, it's at the beginning, isn't it? There it is. Kind of anticlimactic when you come to your finish up so slowly. All right. So, here we are. Living in God's will takes any life and makes it full and abundant. Divine fruit, uh, full of divine (laughs) fruit, which will bring great joy to the individual. It doesn't matter where you are. Right now, what matters is you do his will. And this is what John, John in a camel hair robe or whatever it is, with a belt around him, eating locusts and honey, reveal that to us. That he's willing to do God's will. And he prospers greatly for it. Not materially, but where it really counts. He bore fruit to the glory of God. We will too it's God's plan for every single one of us. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for the uh, truth that we can, each of us, no matter where we're at, and glorify you greatly and bear fruit to you. And that fruit will be magnificent because it's yours. And so, Father, we long for that. Teach us, Father, to not seek changes that you don't want changed, Teach us to seek changes that you do want change so that we will more ably be able to see clearly what life really is with you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.